Hey there, and welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. My name is Benita Litvak, and I am so grateful you're here. I'm an ASHA certified speech language pathologist, author, and augmentative and alternative communication consultant who is obsessed with helping SLPs like you stop reinventing the wheel and connect with other SLPs in the trenches. Have you ever wondered how other SLPs seem to be doing it all with ease? Well, around here, you'll get to hear firsthand how SLPs are really getting things done while keeping evidence-based practice and self-care in mind. Think of this as a coffee date with your SLP friends. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. Have you been thinking about starting a private practice? Whether you want to go all in or only see clients on the side, Jenna joins me today to talk about her five-step process to building a successful private practice. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment. You can also follow along on Instagram at Speechy Side Up. All links are in the show notes. Now let's get into the show. Today, I'm joined by Jenna Castro-Casbon, an SLP and private practice consultant, as well as an author who has helped thousands of speech-language pathologists start and grow their own private practices through her company, The Independent Clinician. She has written articles for the ASHA Leader and was invited as a presenter at the ASHA Connect in 2017. Jenna also teaches and serves as a clinical instructor at Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts, And you'll find her in the SLP Private Practice Beginners Facebook group, the Start and Grow Your Private Practice programs, and can hear her on the Private Practice Success Stories podcast. Jenna lives in Boston, Massachusetts, and is a wife and mama to two young boys. Hey, Jenna. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to speak with you today. Before we get started, let's paint a picture for the listeners. Tell us about who you are, what you do today, and how you got there. Okay, fabulous. I'm just so excited to meet new audiences. And obviously, you have podcast listeners and, you know, um, having a I have a podcast where I teach SLPs how to start private practices by interviewing other successful private practice owners to show people what's possible. You know, when I first started in this profession, I wasn't really sure about private practice. It was something that my dad always wanted me to do. He's a business owner. And he kept trying to get me to, to join the family business. And I kept saying like, dad, I don't want to do business. Like business is boring and I'm a helping people person, not a business person. So no, thank you. And so, you know, I went off to grad school for speech pathology and, you know, there really wasn't anything taught about private practice in grad school. I think we had, you know, maybe one guest speaker and a couple people had placements in private practices. But other than that, there was pretty much no exposure So when I got out of school, I had my CF at, you know, my dream position, which was a outpatient rehabilitation hospital in Boston, um, Spalding Rehab. And I loved it. I was so lucky to be there. I was happy to be there. I loved my clients. I had all people with aphasia and other neurogenic issues, mild TBI, and I absolutely loved it until about nine months or so after I got my C's when I started to feel stuck. And I started to feel stuck because I didn't have, you know, control over my caseload. I had, you know, insane amounts of documentation that needed to be completed, you know, the day of. 
And I just felt like I wasn't really able to make the difference for my clients that I wanted to, you know, that, that I got into this profession to be able to have. And it was around this time that I had a, one of those like lunch conversations with coworkers where you don't actually talk about work. Um, I wish those happened more often and that people had time for lunch <laughs> during the day. <laughs> but anyway, um, this was one of those, those moments. And so my two coworkers started talking about their private practices. And I had no idea that they had private practices. I knew that they worked part-time with me at the hospital, but I didn't really think about what they did like when they worked with me. So it's, it turns out they both had small private practices on the side of the job that they did with me. And that was one of my first things that I just, I didn't know you could have a private practice on the side. I thought that private practice was all or nothing. Either you were in private practice or you weren't. So that one like kind of shifted my mindset about, you know, what was possible. And then, you know, they kept talking more and they said that they didn't, they were both thinking about getting office space and kind of weighing the pros and cons of having a brick and mortar. And so then I said, well, you guys don't have office space. Like I thought that was like necessary. <laughs> and, and they said, no, we actually see the clients in their homes. It's, you know, we could have office space, you know, we're sort of debating it, but you know, it's a, pretty significant expense, especially in the Boston area. And it's nicer to see people in their homes. And I was like, wow, okay, that's interesting. And then they um, asked if I was interested in having a private practice. And I was like, well, I don't know, maybe like one day. And so one of them said, well, Jenna, have you ever been asked to treat a private client or if you're interested in treating private clients? And I, I said, well, yes, but I've always referred them to you guys. You know, at the time I had only had my C's for like a couple of months, right? And they're like, well, you know, what if next time you said yes? And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, I don't have anything set up. I don't know anything about this. And they said, no worries. Like, we'll, we'll mentor you and we'll help get you up and running. So a couple of weeks later, somebody asked through like a friend of a friend, but it was for a child with autism and that's not, you know, my specialty. So I, I said, no but I did feel a little sad that I had passed on the opportunity um, and maybe a little disappointed with myself and, and worried that my, my new mentors might be disappointed in me too, although you know they weren't. Um, and then a couple of weeks after that, I got an opportunity from an old friend from grad school that I had said that I was gonna maybe start this private practice. And she, it was for a, a, an adult with aphasia, which was like my bread and butter. And I talked to the wife and she told me about the husband and I felt like I could truly help. And so um, they said, yes, I said, yes. And that was how I got my first client, but I had never considered those things, right? That you could start earlier in your career, that you could start on the side of your regular job. And you could start in this like lean way where you don't have to have all of the things like, a brick and mortar space or all of the assessments or whatnot before getting started. So that was really a lesson to me that there's a lot of ways to have a private practice. And although I think lots of us think that there's like one way to do it, there's actually a ton of ways to do it. So that's how I got started on my private practice journey. And you know, now what I do is I help other SLPs who are thinking about starting private practices figure out if it's right for them, and if so, how to get up and running the right way. 
And I also, you know, spend a lot of time interviewing other successful private practitioners to learn how they have grown their businesses and then help them, you know, impart their wisdom on uh, people who are just getting started. So it's a lot of fun. That's awesome. I love what you said that private practice isn't all or nothing. I think that that's a really great point to bring up and you illustrated that in your example. So how long did it take you to kind of move from this side hustle to doing it full time? Great question. So I started off, like I said, like a couple clients a week. And at the time I was working 40 hours. Well, let's be honest, 40 hours plus at the hospital. Um, And so I eventually shifted my days to four 10 hour days. And I had Fridays, you know, air quotes off. And that's when I saw the private clients. But as demand for the services grew, as you know, I started getting more and more clients, also some of those clients wanted me to come multiple times a week. And I didn't necessarily want to do like, you know, Friday and Sunday, you know, to have that like day off. So then I ended up switching my hours, I think to like 32 hours and I had two long days and three half days. So that allowed me to see more people during the week. And so I was able to get up to, I think about six, 12, maybe it was either 12 or 16 sessions while still having that 32 hour position. Now, full transparency at the time I was single. So it was just me. I didn't have kids yet. And, you know, I had space to make that happen. And then over time I reduced my hours like more. And then I still actually always had like a 20 hour position at the hospital, but then I was able to go up to 24 sessions per week with private clients on the side. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So if someone is interested in starting a private practice, what is the basic steps that they should be taking? Okay, great question. So one of the things that I teach people to do is to follow a five-step success path, okay? So there are five steps that SLPs need to do to start a a private practice the right way. And if any of these steps are missed, there could be a problem down the line. And I know SLPs don't like to make a mistake, right? Everyone's afraid of, of risk and all that kind of stuff. So this is a way that minimizes the risk involved in starting a private practice. All five of these phases start with the letter P because SLPs love that kind of thing, right? So the first phase is to picture your private practice. So this is where you want to, you know, sit down with, you know, a journal or, you know, a vision board or something like that and figure out, you know, who do you want to serve in your private practice? What kind of clients do you want to see? When do you want to see them? When can you fit them in to your schedule? Where do you want to see those clients? Right now, most services are happening on telepractice, but there are some you know, in-person services going on. So the where question has changed a little bit over the years. Um, what also services do you wanna deliver? Do you wanna do individual therapy? Do you wanna do evaluations? Do you wanna do groups, you know, mommy and me kind of classes? You know, what do you wanna offer? And I should have started with this, but why is the other thing that you need to, to figure out as part of you know, picturing your private practice is, what is your driving force for doing this? Is it because you want to spend more time with your kids? Is it because you want to earn more money? Is it because you want a more you know, flexible schedule to do other things or to you know, um, make a name for yourself and be, really become an expert in you know, whatever it is that you do, right? All of those things are really important 
to have first, right? I often say that you wouldn't build a house without an architect or having architectural plans. So the first part where you're picturing your private practice is kind of like um, setting the stage for what it is that you're going to build, okay? Then once you have your vision in place and you have your picture, you've, you've pictured your private practice, then we need to help you protect your private practice. So this is the part where you start to get all of your ducks in a row, right? Listeners, who likes to get their ducks in a row, right? Probably like 99% of your audience is raising your hand right now, right? Mm -hmm. So people like to get their ducks in a row. So this is where we're going to figure out, you know, how to minimize your legal, financial, and personal risk associated with starting a, any business really, but in our case, a private practice. So this is where you're going to get professional liability insurance. You're going to get a business license if needed in your town. You also might get an LLC or a PLLC, S Corp, you know, whatever kind of business um, designation, a business bank account. And you're also gonna figure out what kind of documentation that you need to do because you do need to document your services in private practice. So those are some of the kinds of things that you need to do to get those ducks in a row before you start treating clients. Okay, so we've got the picture, your private practice, and then we're going to protect your private practice. And again, think of that like the foundation and the framing on which the rest of your house, private practice, will be built. So once you have all that in place, then you can actually start seeing clients. So the third phase is called promote. So this is where you're going to actually start getting the word out, start marketing about your private practice, and start getting your first clients. Now, some people, you know, everybody wants word of mouth marketing. That's great, but you have to kind of build to that, right? In order to get word of mouth marketing, you have to give people something to talk about, right? People need to know that you exist and you know, know what you do and how you help people in order to send clients to you. So, you know, sometimes people get worried, well, I don't I don't know about marketing. I don't I don't want to be pushy. And, you know, unless you're a pushy person in real life, you're probably not going to be pushy as a business owner. So what you have to do is figure out, well, what, what do you want to do? So people need a website these days, right? It used to be all about business cards. Well, people aren't, you know, the thing with websites is that people are searching for services, right? So everyone needs just even a basic website and think of a website like a brochure. It's an online brochure that explains who you are, how you help people, and if the person who goes to that website thinks that you're the person for them, you know, how to contact you, right? So you also want to make sure that you're building awareness for your services in your community amongst old, you know, friends, colleagues, anybody who might be able to refer clients to you. A lot of people in my Start Your Private Practice program end up getting their first clients from Facebook groups, like parent Facebook groups in their area. Somebody posts, hey, you know, I've got a child who's got like, a little lisp, what should I do about that? You know, those are the kind of, of places where parents are looking for services. So that's a great way to do it. Um, my favorite story, uh, real quick, for a client who got, um, or a student rather, who got their first client was in a Subway restaurant, you know, like the $5 footlong place. Um, <laughs> and she was wearing a t-shirt that said, you know, I'm an SLP. It was one of those cute SLP t-shirts, right? And this was right kind of a couple of months ago, it was still during the pandemic, but restaurants were open. And she went in and this mom saw her shirt and said, oh my goodness, I have a son with autism. He's nonverbal. He hasn't been able to get services. Like, are you 
providing services or do you know anyone who is because we're we're in desperate need and she smiled and she said well I have a private practice and that's how she got her first client at Subway so you never know who is out there looking for you and your services so you do have to you know just have your awareness up I'm not saying you got to wear an I'm a speech therapist shirt everywhere but it did help uh, this one woman in that circumstance so getting your first client and then your first clients is very exciting because now you're having an opportunity to get paid what you're worth, right? And get paid what your value is. And so the next thing that we wanna talk about, the fourth phase is getting paid, right? That's the fourth P. So people can go through this in a variety of ways. I do recommend that people try to start with private pay because it's the cleanest and easiest way to get started. There are some markets that support private pay very easily. There are other markets that don't. So if you are in a market that supports private pay, start there and, and do that for as long as you possibly can. If you are in an area that doesn't and that people are more dependent on private insurance or Medicare or Medicaid, then you're gonna to need to become a provider for those services. There's a credentialing process to go through, but you will eventually you know, get credentialed and then get paid that way. It's a little bit more complicated, but it allows you to see more clients and, and kind of make it up on volume. The difference between private pay and third-party payers is that third-party payers do often pay less, so you have to see more people versus private pay, you can charge more and see less people. So it just kind of depends on what works for you and also what works for your market. The final phase in this five-part framework I call prosper. So this is the phase where your private practice is up and running and you get to make a choice. How do you want to grow it? And how do you want the business that you have been serving to start to serve you? So this might be the phase where you start to think about hiring people. Maybe you want to hire independent contractors, employees, um, an assistant, you know, whomever you want, uh, multidisciplinary services, maybe start adding some of those group offerings that maybe you thought about doing in the beginning. So the prosper phase is really where you start to diversify your income, maybe bring on more people to support you and your growth and really figure out what do you want your private practice to look like going forward. So that prosper phase also kind of revisits a little bit of the first step with, with the vision because the vision might change over time. So real quick, just to recap, you're going to picture your private practice, promote, or sorry, picture, protect, promote, get paid and prosper. So those are the steps that I lead people in my programs through. Of course, there's lots of you know, steps along the way, but that is the general process that I teach and that my students have been able to be successful with. I love that. Thank you for recapping it too. Yeah. No I know that insurance concerns are a huge factor, I think, and maybe fear factor in anybody who's wanting yeah. to like start a private practice. Do you go into that in like a lot of detail, like in your courses yes. or in your Facebook groups? Yes, that is something that really is very intimidating to a lot of, of my students, right? People um, don't want to submit a claim that gets rejected, for example. And so 
I just want people to know if you were ever to submit a claim that got rejected, you have an, it doesn't mean that you're going to like SLP jail mm -hmm. or that you're out like a boatload of money. You have an opportunity to resubmit that claim, right? So what we teach in the program and what people have access to actually on an ongoing basis is someone who answers questions specifically about insurance, but you have an, like insurance is something that you have to learn, right? And it, you learn it by doing it, right? You, you, you know, can watch, you know, trainings in my program and whatnot, and we have, you know, cheat sheets, but there's also like, you have to go through the process of actually doing it to learn how it's done, but we do provide support around that. But, you know, back to, you know, what I said earlier, it really is kind of about, you know, what is your area going to support? And then also, you know, about volume right? If you go the private pay route, you can see less clients. But if you're going to use insurance, you do have to see more people. And so sometimes people use that really as a way to grow. They start off private uh, pay only. And then when they want to really grow their practice, that also might be when they start accepting insurance, because you're just going to get a larger volume of potential clients who are interested in having services, but may not be interested or able to do private pay. But insurance, like a lot of private practices, you know, depend on insurance and that you have to learn how to do it. It is a hundred percent doable, but you have to do it and learn because each also insurance company is a little bit different, right? And there are certain areas that have one company, but not the other. Um, but it is definitely worth it to figure out how to do because it, it really is a great way to be reimbursed, but you do have to do some work to, to make it happen. Great points. And I was actually surprised to find out that there are people, I guess they call themselves like billers, I'm sure they have a more fancy mm -hmm. name, who are experts in this and yeah. can take that completely off of your hands if it's not something you want to even, like, I'm sure you need to know parts, pieces of it, like you yeah. want to have your hands in every area of your business, but you don't need to be an expert in it like this person is. And I think they take like a small percentage or cut or something to do the billing for you. So that's another option, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Most billing companies take about six to 8%. It depends on the company, but you know, they also make, it's in their interest to have you get reimbursed. Right. And they, just like the person who I have on my staff who helps answer questions for people, you know, people who do billing all the time, they really eat, sleep and breathe that stuff. They're up to date on all, everything, all of the codes, all of the information, what gets reimbursed and why or why not. We can't know all of that stuff, right? I don't know all of that stuff. That's why I have been to help with that, right? But it's like, you know, we want to be able to do what is within our zone of genius. And it's wonderful to be able to hire people who are able to do things in their zone of genius and have them get paid for it but have us also be getting paid for services that might otherwise not be reimbursed or maybe we wouldn't even try. Right. Yeah. And just focusing on what we actually enjoy doing too. Absolutely. So how much experience does someone need to get started with private practice? So great question. I think that you have to make sure that you have stuff to offer. Okay. There are, there's like the old way to start a private practice is to wait until the end of your career, to wait until you have, you know, 15, 20, 25 years of experience 
and then start a private practice. I think that that's the way that people used to do it. And that is, that is one way to do it. And people who kind of are in that camp think, well, I need to wait to become an expert in order to start. The other philosophy, which is, which is what I did and also what I teach, is to, as soon as you have your, you know, your C's, you know, you have your license and everything else, and you have something to offer, then you can start a private practice now. And so instead of waiting to become an expert to start a private practice, you actually become an expert as you build your private practice. If you wait until the end of your career, well, first of all, you know, who determines that anybody's an expert anyway, right? That's like a self-proclaimed thing, unless maybe you have, you know, a board certification or whatnot. But, you know, there's so much to know in our field and things change and, things, and there's new developments all the time. I don't think that hardly anyone in our profession feels like an expert. So what you want to do is to, again, make sure that you have knowledge to give and expertise. So it could be that if you're, you know, earlier in the profession that you do some CEU courses or you do some advanced trainings or, you know, uh, use, you know, some of these, those uh, techniques, you know, like Hannon or floor time or LSVT or some of these, you know, um, credentialing kind of thing, not credentialing, but, you know, things where you get a certificate and you, you know, learn something um, in order to level up your knowledge earlier in your profession so that you have something to offer. Another good thing about doing those programs is you actually get, in most cases, put on their website so that if a parent in your area is looking for a particular technique and looking for a clinician who's able to do it, then you and your private practice will pop up. So, you know, is, is when are people ready to start a private practice? You know, I've always told people, you know, you're ready when you decide to be ready. I love the, the, those suggestions. Um, I think you're right that you can definitely become an expert as you're building your private practice. I feel like that's the case across any other area of starting a business, you know, yeah. and let's say someone who's, I mean, a doctor, for instance, like they don't wait until they're in their fifties to start their own like private right. practice. Right. I mean, a lot of doctors either join a group or they start their own and they do it pretty early on in their career. So yeah. we go to school and we learn a lot while we're there and you have a lot to offer the clients. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have to, you have to, sit with sometimes some discomfort of feeling like, okay, like I know this, but like, maybe I should learn, I should learn more about this. And if you feel like you should learn more about something, well, you know how to do that, right? There's, there's CEU programs. There's, I mean, right now the ASHA convention isn't really happening, but you know, you can go to conventions, you can find ways to close those gaps in knowledge, but keep in mind, you know, there are parents and families and there are people who are desperate for help. And especially right now during the pandemic, people are not getting the services that they need. There are people right now in your community who are going either without services or who are having subpar services for what they actually need. Then we have speech pathologists who are willing and available to treat those clients. We have people whose hours have been cut. We have SLPs who are working in unsafe environments. We have SLPs who, you know, want a career change, want to do something different and aren't feeling maybe safe 
in the school or the hospital where they're working. So the bridge to, you know, have this gap between people who need services and people who can provide them, I feel is private practice, right? So if you have the willingness to, you know, go through the steps to get up and running, like the right way, make sure you have all of your ducks in a row, there are people in your community right now who need your support and they need your help and they need your expertise, even if it's a growing expertise. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of want to go back to your vision step in mm -hmm. your five-step process. How important is it that someone narrows down the type of client that they want to see and also like says no to the clients that don't fit that vision? Yeah, that's a great question. So in the beginning, um, I think that people should treat any client who they are capable of seeing and provide good service to, okay? So when you're first getting started, you need to build your confidence, your caseload, and also your income. So in the beginning, you know, don't treat someone who you've never done that diagnosis. Like, remember how I passed on the person with autism, right? That wasn't in my wheelhouse. I didn't think I could probably do that good of a job. So I, I said no, right? But as soon as I did find someone who I knew I could do a good job with, I said yes, right? So I had that person with the gentleman with aphasia. And then I think my second or third client was a pediatric feeding client. And I had had a pediatric feeding placement in grad school. It wasn't, you know, too, too long after grad school. So I felt comfortable still doing that. And then I feel like I did a good job for that person, right? Over time though, you do want to start to specialize if that's what you want to do, right? When you have a private practice, you can decide if you want to have a generalist private practice, meaning you see like a whole bunch of different kinds of people, or if you want to have more of a specialty private practice where you treat people with a certain kind of diagnosis, disorder, treatment, et cetera, or like an umbrella of things. Like if you want to be you know, like avoid, do voice, right? So you, so within voice, there's lots of different, you know, ways you can go with that, right? Um, some of the bigger private practices that are thought to be more like generalist private practices, they have hired people who have special interest areas though, right? So if you think about maybe a, a bigger brick and mortar speech pathology private practice in your area that can kind of treat everybody or anybody they probably have someone who like specializes in language delays and someone else who does fluency and someone else who does motor speech, right? So in the beginning when it's just you and you're just starting out, work with anyone that you can do a good job for. Over time, if you wanna to start to specialize and especially if it's gonna be just you, the way to become known and to become the go-to person is to have something to be known for, right? So if you, if you love like, childhood apraxia of speech or something, and you want to become known as the person for that so that when pedi uh, pediatricians maybe have a child who has that diagnosis, they say, oh, you gotta go see so-and-so. She's the, she's the best person in this area to go to, right? That's how you get word of mouth referrals is by being someone who's known for something. So either you need to become known for something or your practice needs to be known for something. And it could be that you or your practice are known for a special, like a, a specific disorder or diagnosis or whatever, or it could be known as a place that helps a lot of different kinds of people, but does a really, really good job. And this, this develops over time. You don't have to decide on day one 
that you only want to do one thing unless you do only want to do one thing and that's okay too. But you as the business owner get to make that decision. And that's something I think that's really different than what most SLPs experience in their regular jobs, right? Most people you work in a school, unless you're in a specialty program, you're going to see a wide range of different kinds of kids. Even if you work in a hospital, you're gonna see a wide range of different kinds of diagnoses or disorders. If you like that, then great, maybe stay there. But if you're like, you know what, I really love you know, kids with hearing impairment and I just only have like one of those on my caseload and those are the people who light me up and allow me to do my best work, I wanna do more of that, then you have an opportunity to do more of that by creating your own setting not waiting for more of those people to come onto your caseload in your current setting, because frankly, that might not happen. Great points. So how do you know if private practice is right for you? Okay, that's another good question. So what I tell people is that, you know, starting a private practice is a business. So you do have to have some interest in being a business owner and starting a business, right? Um, SLPs tend to have this identity of being helping people, people. I know that was my primary identity. When I decided to start this private practice at the suggestion of my mentors, remember this wasn't really on my radar, I had to take on the identity of business owner, right? And, you know, for me, it was, I, it was sort of foreign in the beginning. And then I was like, well, I actually kind of like this. And now I, I love the identity of business owner now, right? We can take on new identities. You don't have to only be a school SLP, like for your whole life or a hospital SLP. And like, like we talked about earlier, you can be both, right? You can be a school SLP who also has a private practice, right? I have two kids and Vanita's about to become a mother. And before I had kids, I did not have the identity of mother. But the day that my oldest son was born, I took on that new identity, right? And so we can take on new identities. So as far as, you know, how do you know when you're ready to start? Well, you have to really just make a, de a decision to, to start. And people decide that they want to go into private practice for a couple of different reasons. So for a long time, I talked, to, talked about the three Fs as being the drivers for why most SLPs do private practice. So the three Fs are freedom, flexibility, and fulfillment. So freedom is really a lot of times for people about clinical freedom, um, making your own decisions, and that kind of thing. Flexibility is often about schedules, making sure that you can set your own schedule, work the hours that you want, you know, if you want to work, you know, mother's hours or, you know, uh, not work on Fridays or not start your day till 10 a.m., right, that kind of thing. And then fulfillment is really feeling like you're doing your best work and you're fulfilled in your profession and in your life. And so for a long time, I talked about the three Fs of freedom, flexibility, and fulfillment. And then one day someone said, Jenna, you're forgetting one of the one of the F's. And I said, oh my goodness, what is it? And she said, finances. And I was like, oh man, you're right. There are people who really want to go into private practice for the finances, right? And I used to think that was true for everybody. And I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I used to think that people who chose private practice were maybe greedy and maybe all about the money. And then once I got into it, I realized that it really is the freedom and the fulfillment and the flexibility that people want. But yes, finances is part of the deal. 
So then I started talking about the four Fs. And then just a couple of weeks ago, I had this, you know, 24 hour period where people told me of more Fs that I needed to add to my thing. And so those are family, right? Family to me, I lumped in a little bit with flexibility, but you know, wanting to do this for their family in terms of spending more time with their family or also building generational wealth, right? That's another way to think about family. And then the last F until maybe I come up with another one is fun. So the ability to have more fun, go, go on more trips, you know, um, do a home renovation, do uh, yoga classes in the middle of the day, whatever you wanna do, to the ability to have more fun. So those are the main reasons why SLPs go into private practice. Freedom, flexibility, fulfillment, finances, family, and fun. I love it. And there's got to be somebody listening right now who's thinking of another one so they can reach out to you yes. give your information yes. at the end. Find me on Instagram at independent clinician. If you can come up with a seventh F, I would love to include it. <laughs> so what about conflicts, whether it's with school districts or other employers, how do you handle those? So that's a question that I get asked a lot where people say like, okay, I would really love to do this, Jenna. I'm, I'm like practically all in here. But, you know, how would I, I have like maybe a conflict? So if people, first of all, I'm the kind of person who is like an honesty is the best policy kind of a person. If you are working in a school district, you are probably not able to see clients from your school district. But guess what? There are other school districts in your area, right? So what you can do is you, you probably can't see people in your district, but you can go to the neighboring town or another school district talk to their SLPs and say, hey, I'm I have this private practice. You know, if there's any kids that you, you know, come across, you know, in, in your school or in your district who need private therapy services, you know, a lot of parents do private therapy on top of whatever the child is getting in the school, right? And a lot of school districts have referral lists of other professionals to refer people to. So you want to get yourself on that list in other districts. So the way to avoid conflicts in a school is just to not treat people in your school or school district and look at neighboring districts and get on their lists and start to build connections with those people so that they can refer clients to you. The other thing that has to do with conflicts that people talk about is sometimes people have signed non-compete clauses. And this is more common if you're working for other people's private practices or also potentially hospitals. Usually schools don't have non-competes. What I want people to realize is that non-competes is, is about money. Are you competing financially for patients, for clients, for, for whoever they serve? So you wanna, if you have signed a non-compete, you wanna take a look at it and you wanna see what are the terms that you agreed to. So in some cases, it's about geography, that you're not allowed to serve people like in your own private practice, let's say within like a five mile radius. Okay, then you can see people, you know, five miles or more out. It might be that you're not allowed to serve the same populations. Okay, that might be a little harder if you chose that job because you like that particular population, but maybe you, you know, always wanted to try accent modification or you know, um, some, something else that is not offered at your primary place of employment. I've always heard, and of course I'm not a lawyer, I'm a speech pathologist, but that, that non-compete clauses don't stand up well in court. 
Well, I always tell my people, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also like a conflict avoider. So I'm not trying to get anybody to the level that they would be in court. But you definitely want to take a look at what that language is and probably meet with a lawyer to say like, hey, this is what it says. You know, what am I able to do or not to do? And at some point you might need to make a decision. Like, do you want to start this private practice, which might mean leaving your job? And it means either like, you know, um, going without income while you're building your practice, or maybe you shift, you, maybe you leave that job that you can't have a private practice on the side of, and maybe do either some PRN jobs or a part-time job. And you're very clear, like on your resume, maybe you even add your private practice. So people know from the very beginning, like, hey, I have a private practice that I'm building. This would be a part-time job for me. So I'm all about, you know, honesty and transparency. But also, if you have a dream of starting a private practice, figuring out ways to make that dream come true so that you are able to, you know, take control of your professional and your personal life. Yeah, I love that. And I think if you are feeling stuck, in a situation and you really want to do the private practice, if there's a will, there's a way. And I'm sure that, you know, if someone became a student of yours, that you would certainly help them out <laughs> and evaluate their particular situation. Thank you for tuning into this episode. It was made possible through our partnership with Presence Learning. With over 12 years of experience and 3 million teletherapy sessions delivered, Presence Learning is the leading provider of live online special education related services for pre-K through 12 nationwide. Presence Learning has an award-winning platform and a community of over 1,600 clinicians in its care network. They offer licensing support, 100% remote work, the ability to design your own schedule, and a supportive community that helps you reach more students while doing what you love. Check out the link in this episode description to learn more about Presence Learning. So if people want to learn more, where can they find and connect with you? Okay, so the best place to connect with me, I have two places, audience, so, so listen up. If you're on Instagram, send me a DM. It's at independentclinician.com. And tell me you heard me on this podcast and what your number one takeaway was, because I would love to hear it. So Instagram at independent clinician. If you like freebies, SLPs love themselves a freebie. Um, I have a freebie called the private practice roadmap, which talks a little bit about what I discussed today, but also goes into more depth and also covers three mistakes that I see people make. People can get that at startyourprivatepractice.com backslash freebie. Um, and then lastly, obviously your podcast listeners, cause you're listening on here, um, head over to iTunes or wherever you find your podcast and look up the private practice success stories podcast, because what you'll get to hear are a wide variety of SLPs who have private practices. Some of them are huge. Some of them are tiny. Some people it's their first year. Some people they've been in private practice for 25 years and everybody in between specialty practices, general practices, people who offer bilingual services, you know, um, minority SLPs, whatever you want. I've got, I've had those kind of people on the show and it's just a wonderful way for you to see two things. One, what kinds of private practices are possible and also what could be possible for you, right? In my own life, when I see someone else do something, 
it helps me think like, wow, I could probably do that too. So as you're listening to episodes of my podcast, I want listeners to think like, wow, if she could do it, you know, I'm also from a small town in Michigan. Maybe I could do that, right? Or, wow, I also want to do hippotherapy. I had no idea that there were private practices that offered hippotherapy. That's interesting. I'd like to do that, right? So it's a really nice way to see a cross-section of private practitioners and also help you realize that if it's possible for them, because they also just used to be like a regular SLP, just like you, it is also possible for you to take on that identity of business owner, start your own private practice and build it to a level, you know, that works for you so that you can get that freedom, flexibility, fulfillment, finances, family, and fun that you want. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing where people can find and connect with you. And your podcast is amazing and a wonderful free resource for people to refer to. So thank you for mentioning that as well. Jenna, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And I really appreciate you. And um, thank you listeners for listening to this episode. And I look forward to connecting with you further. Sounds great. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening. By the way, have you joined the SSU crew yet? By joining, you get access to the free goods section on our website, plus podcast updates, special event notifications, and therapy inspiration. You can sign up at bit.ly slash join SSU crew, all lowercase, or just find the link in this episode description. Also, don't forget to take a screenshot of this episode so that you can always refer back to it and share it on social media if you really love the topic. Take care and remember to always fill your speechy side cup first before you can pour into others.